Uh, Father in heaven, we are thankful that you um, hear and answer prayer. And we want to lift up to you uh, our dear uh, brothers and sisters in Christ um, in Egypt today and know that many of them uh, don't have a place to worship uh, this morning because their churches have been burned in the past week. And so we pray uh, for peace in that country uh, for all people And we pray that you would preserve and protect um, your followers in the midst of persecution. May they not be hardened against you or turned away, but that they might be strengthened um, by the prayers of their fellow saints around the world. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, Well, we're looking at the book of Jonah this morning uh, in, in open here. And as I thought about the book of Jonah uh, this past week, uh, I realized that I actually hate grace sometimes. And this probably isn't something that you would expect to hear a pastor say, Um, probably not something that Christians would usually say that they hate grace. But the more that I've thought about it, grace is not something that we're, if we're really honest with ourselves, that we actually like. Grace is offensive, because it basically means that that I don't get what I deserve. It, It means Um, that I am at some level not good enough on my own. I mean, who here likes to ask for help, right? Who takes pride in the fact that you are constantly doing the things that you know that are bad for you and that you're in need of grace on a regular basis, right? No, No one does. But we also hate grace because it means that other people don't get what they deserve, and there's a part of us that love watch, loves watching people get what's coming to them, right? And I was reminded of this a few weeks ago. Rachel and I were on a walk uh, on the trolley track trail out here on Warnell, and we were walking down. It was about the Thursday, about 5.30 in the afternoon. As we were walking along the trail, we decided we would stop at the Quick Trip at 73rd and Warnell and get a soda. And as we came out of the Quick Trip, we noticed that there were some police officers standing next to the Sutherland's hardware there. And we wondered, what's, what's going on? And then all of a sudden it clicked. You can't make a left-hand turn off of Warnell onto 73rd Street during rush hour at that intersection. And so we watched car after unsuspecting car put on their turn signal, sit in the lane of traffic, complete their turn, only to have a police officer step out in the middle of the road and wave them aside with a ticket ready to hand them. And I actually love this, because if you drive down Warnell... I've gotten stopped in a long line of cars during rush hour so many times on that road because it's too much traffic. You can't make a left turn there. And so I said, Rach, let's watch. And we stopped and we watched for 10 minutes as car after car turned and got a ticket. And I I loved it. Now, of course, if, if I get pulled over, you know, I'm, I'm begging for mercy, I'm pleading, I'm praying, God, you know, have them show mercy, but, but not for those lawbreakers. They need a ticket. There's part of us that loves watching people get what they deserve. And you might be thinking, what does all this talk about grace have to do with the story of Jonah? I mean, isn't Jonah the story of the guy who runs away from God, gets swallowed by a fish, spit up, and then, you know, lives happily ever after? I mean, I think all of us, even if we're not really church-going people, we kind of know a little bit about the story of Jonah. It's kind of seeped its way into the popular culture of our country. And yet, do we really know the story as well as we think? This morning, as we look at the book of Jonah, we're going to see the story sort of unfold in two movements. One, grace displayed. 
That's chapters 1 through 3. And then in chapter 4, grace despised. So grace displayed and grace despised. So Jonah's story begins with these words in verse 1 of chapter 1. And if you, again, if you have a pew Bible, it's on page 774. This is how the book begins. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Let's just stop right there. If you've been following along with Open Here, reading throughout the Bible, you've probably heard that phrase a few times before, the word of the Lord came to. It's often used in the prophets when God speaks to his prophets, his spokespeople. And so we've heard the word of the Lord comes to Isaiah, it comes to Jeremiah, to Ezekiel, to Amos. But now the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, Jonah, son of Amitti. And I just want to pause here for a second to give a little bit of background that's going to help us understand the story better as we go along. So Jonah is a prophet during the reign of King Jeroboam II. And King Jeroboam II reigned over Israel, northern kingdom, and God displayed an amazing amount of grace to the nation during this time. Jeroboam and the people were rapidly turning away from God, and yet, during this time, the kingdom expanded to its greatest size in its history, even greater than the size of the time during Solomon. So God displays incredible grace there. But here's where the story starts to get interesting. Because you would think the word of the Lord's coming to Jonah, and you would think that God is going to tell him, go prophesy to Israel. Tell them that they're sinning, that they're rebelling against me. I mean, that's what most of the other prophets did, right? They prophesied against Israel and Judah. Sometimes they said something about the other nations, but they prophesied to God's people. But that's not what happens here. Look at verse 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now we learn two things about Nineveh in this verse. First, God describes it as that great city. Now, the language of that great city could speak of the the quantity or the quality. So it could say, you know, it's the great in size city. It's a big city. It's just a, it's a very large city. Or it could also, great could be speaking of the, uh, the type of city, the, the quality of the city, that it's, it's a valuable city, an important city, a well-cultured, well-developed city. And so which is it here? Um, it's really both. Uh, Nineveh was a large, important, well-developed city. We've got a map up here right under Assyria, that big, you see Nineveh, and Israel is down uh, to the south there. And Nineveh was both a great city in size, but it was also a great city of importance. And Nineveh is now, um, the ruins of Nineveh are part of Mosul, Iraq. Um, you can go there and see those ruins today. In fact, I have a picture here of some of the, these are some of the walls of Nineveh in Mosul. Now you can go and visit um, those. And at its zenith, the city walls of Nineveh were nearly eight miles in circumference. And I have another photo here of the, the, one of the gates of the city that's been rebuilt in modern Iraq. So you kind of get a picture of, of what maybe one of the gates would have looked like during the time of Jonah. And when the Assyrian ruler Zennacherib made Nineveh the capital of Assyria, he developed, along with those walls, a massive palace and gardens and a system of aqueducts to bring water into the city. Um, it was the cultural and political center of the Assyrian nation. So basically, this is the Washington, D.C. and the New York City of Assyria together in one city. So we learned that Assyria was a great city, that Nineveh was a great city, but second, we learned that their evil has come up before God. And in the Bible, Nineveh was regarded as the seat of the greatest enemy of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. 
And the Assyrians were brutal in war. They would impale their enemies on pikes. They would put hooks in their skin as they led them off into captivity. They worshiped a pantheon of pagan gods and idols. And so God comes to his prophet, Jonah, and he says, go, cry out against the city. Anybody thinking, Bill, if if we're going to get through the whole book, you've got to pick up the pace because we're only in verse 2 here. And we are going to move a little bit faster, but it's important that we know the characters of the story before we get too far in. Okay, so what does Jonah do when he hears God's call? God commands him, Jonah, arise. But what does he do? Look at verse 3. And he arose and went to Nineveh just as the Lord commanded him, is what you would expect the text to say. I mean, don't that's what God's prophets usually do? Obey him? But not this time. Jonah arises, but not to obey, but to flee. And he goes down to Joppa, and he finds a ship headed to Tarshish. He pays his fare, he boards the ship, and he goes with them headed to Tarshish. You see those short kind of staccato verses, you get this sense of action. Jonah's doing this fast. And we don't know exactly where Tarshish is, but we do know that it was far, far away from Nineveh. And Jonah thinks that maybe, just maybe, if he gets that far away from Israel, if he gets that far away from Nineveh, that he can get away from God. He goes away from the presence of the Lord. You see, Jonah would rather not have God at all than to have him and do what God has told him to. Now, why does Jonah flee? Why does he run away? I mean, he's he's scared. I mean, probably the Assyrians were pretty brutal people. I can imagine there's some fear in there. But is this the real reason? Keep asking yourself that as we go along, because some of the things we're going to discover might surprise you. Now, Jonah's plan to flee from God's presence doesn't work out as well as, uh, as he might want. Um, and we see in verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest, so that the ship threatened to break up. And then the mariners were afraid, and they cried out each to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. And so the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise! Call out to your God. Perhaps God will give us a thought that we may not perish. So God sends a great windstorm on Jonah. Jonah's fleeing, but God is pursuing. And now the pagan sailors know that this is a bad deal. Um, they've started praying to their gods, um, but the storm, doesn't, the storm doesn't die down. In fact, it begins to get worse. And so now they start throwing the cargo overboard, which means that they just lost a massive amount of money. I mean, you don't do this unless this is absolutely a desperate situation. So they threw over all the cargo that they were entrusted with. And now where is Jonah in the midst of all of this? Where is the one true prophet of the one true God, the one who really knows God, who could really maybe help in this situation? Where is he? He's down sleeping in the bottom of the boat. And you kind of get the sense that Jonah just can't really be bothered with other people's problems. And so the ship's captain runs down into the bottom and he says, Jonah, you loser, basically you sleeper, get up, pray. Now, this is ironic. The pagan sailor is telling God's prophet to pray. 
right? I mean, and he actually almost uses the same words, right? He says, Jonah, arise and call. This is the same thing that God has said earlier. Jonah, arise and cry out against the city. Jonah, rise and call out to your God. The pagans are more spiritually aware here than God's prophet. And once they get Jonah up on the pitching and rolling deck with the rain pounding down and the wind howling so that they can barely hear one another over the shout, the sailors suggest that they, they should cast lots, which is like rolling dice. They should roll dice and, and see who is responsible for this evil coming down on them. Well, and guess who the lot says is responsible? Jonah. And so immediately they demand to know, Jonah, who are you? Where, where are you coming from? And this is where we see Jonah's arrogance really kind of on full display. Look at verse 9. He says to them, well, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah proudly announces that he is a Hebrew who worships the one true God, who made all the sea and the dry land. But doesn't Jonah hear himself at this point? I mean, he's looking down on the pagans because because he worships the one true God who made everything. And yet Jonah somehow thinks that he can run away from the God who made the whole earth. Jonah, why do you think you can get away from God's presence? He just said he made everything. Now again, Jonah doesn't see this sort of massive incongruity in what he's saying, but the the pagans, they get it. They recognize that radically disobeying God and saying to worship him at the same time don't go together, and they're actually pretty freaked out about it. Again, they show a lot more spiritual sensitivity and awareness than Jonah. So their reaction is the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For they knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And knowing that you don't mess with God or the gods, the pagans, they immediately say to Jonah, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now, you would think at this point that the sailors would be more than willing to oblige uh, Jonah in this request. I mean, certainly if the tables returned, uh, Jonah would be more than happy to throw any one of them overboard. But the sailors aren't ready to do that yet. Look at verse 13. They say, Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them, and therefore they called out to the Lord. Now the pagans are praying to Jonah's God. They're praying to the one true God. And they say, O Lord, let us perish. Let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done it as you pleased. They pray. They pray to the one true God and they ask for forgiveness for what they're about to do. And, and, And you almost get the sense from their prayer that maybe Jonah kind of wanted them to throw him overboard so that then his blood would be on their hands and God would destroy them too. I mean, Jonah just really doesn't like these pagans at all. But the sailors are out of options. And so after they pray, they picked up Jonah, verse 11, and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. You see, these pagans are better Hebrews than Jonah. They're they're praying to God. They're offering sacrifices to God. They're making vows. 
It's like there's a little revival that has just broken out on board the ship here. Uh, I mean, no thanks to Jonah, who's now tumbling down into the sea. Jonah's downward slide is now complete. He went down to Joppa, and then he went down into the boat, and now he's going down into the sea. And then in verse 17, we read, he goes down into the belly of a great fish. Verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now, can I just pause here for a minute and say, at this point in the story, probably some of us are getting a little bit skeptical, right? I mean, maybe we can buy that that God is speaking to people, um, and maybe even you can get behind the idea that maybe God influences the weather a little bit, but a fish swallowing a guy, him staying alive in there for three days, this is a little bit beyond belief, right? Um, I mean, I admit, it's a little bizarre. Uh, But if God is truly the maker and creator of all things, I mean, if he can give life, if he can raise people from the dead, then he can certainly preserve someone's life in the belly of a fish. Um, if, if God exists and he is who the Bible says he is, then as bizarre as this seems, it, it, it is possible, right? Now, while Jonah is in the fish, he prayed a long, eloquent, kind of maybe perhaps questionable in his sincerity as a prayer in chapter 2, and he sort of strings it together from phrases in the Psalms. We're not going to read it. Um, but he concludes with these words in, in verse 8 of chapter 2. He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And in other words, Jonah's really saying, God, I'm so thankful that I am not like those nasty idol worshipers. Save me because I'm one of your special people. Salvation belongs to you, uh, for me, Uh, Not not for those other people, but salvation belongs to you for me. So what does God think of Jonah's prayer? Well, frankly, it makes him want to vomit. And so he does in a way. Chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. I love how the American author Frederick Buechner describes this moment. He writes, after swallowing the prophet Jonah... The fish suffered a severe attack of acid indigestion. And it's not hard to see why. Jonah had a disposition that was enough to curdle milk. Now Jonah, wet and reeking on the shore, once again hears God's word, and this time he complies. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. God reminds us again here that Nineveh is a great city, an exceedingly great city. And God has a message for that city that Jonah is to deliver question is, will he? The answer is, sort of. The text is clear that this is a big city, right? A three days journey across. But the text also tells us that Jonah goes one day's journey in. I mean, he's kind of doing this a little half-heartedly. He just kind of goes into the outskirts. 
And then he announces the message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's all he says. This isn't exactly a Billy Graham moment for, for Jonah here. I mean, he doesn't say anything about God. He doesn't offer any kind of hope. He just says, 40 days and all of you are going to fry. And, uh, you know, somehow, but through no fault of Jonah's, the people actually believe and repent. They put on sackcloth and ashes. These are signs of mourning and humility. It says, the text, it says, they believed God. And eventually the word reaches the king of Nineveh, and and he too goes into mourning and repentance. And then, get this, he publishes a proclamation throughout the entire city of Nineveh. The pagan king is about to become a better, more powerful, more effective evangelist than God's own prophet. Listen to verse 7 through 10. And the king issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. These are the words of a pagan king now. By decree of the king and his nobles, let the man, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and may turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. That's a better sermon than Jonah gave. And then look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. I mean, this is amazing. The city is saved. This is almost like you going to uh, Mecca or Medina in Saudi Arabia and, and just almost instantaneously the entire population becomes Christians. That's how unlikely this would have felt. And we don't know if these people had a, a, a full faith in God, but they, they believe what God said and God shows them grace. They believe God and they were spared. This is stunning. I mean, grace has been gloriously displayed. I mean, this is a cause for celebration. This is amazing. And this is where most Sunday school lessons and children's Bibles end the story of Jonah. It's a great place to end. But there's chapter 4. What we find in chapter 4 is so unexpected, so unnerving, that it just isn't taught much. So what happens in chapter 4? Take a look at verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Jonah loses it. He's furious. And the, the guy comes absolutely unglued. How could God do this? How could God spare people like this? Listen to how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse. He captures the sense of the text perfectly. This is what he, what he, how he phrases these verses. Jonah was furious. He lost his temper. He yelled at God, God, I knew it. When I was back home, I knew this was going to happen. And that's why I ran off to Tarshish. I knew you were sheer grace and mercy, not easily angered, rich in love, and ready to drop at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. So God, if you won't kill them, kill me. I'm better off 
dead. And then I love this. God in his patience, his mercy, his grace, he simply asks Jonah a question. Why are you angry, Jonah? Is it right that you're upset? Jonah doesn't answer. He's too angry to speak. He is livid. How could God do this? How could you show grace to those people? Those people, God, really? So Jonah goes out the city, verse, outside of the city, verse 5 tells, and he sits down to wait and see what will happen. You almost get the sense that Jonah's saying, God, you, he's going to come around. He's going to see that this city really does deserve to be destroyed. I'm just going to sit down, I'm going to get my popcorn out, and I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to wait and see. God's got to come around and see that he made the wrong choice here. He, he's going to destroy the city. I, I know he is. And so he sits down to watch and to wait. Now, as Jonah is sitting there, waiting for God to show up and destroy the city, God shows Jonah even more grace. He appoints a plant to grow up over Jonah so that he has some nice shade. The text actually says the plant comes up to shade Jonah from from being in discomfort from the sun. And Jonah, it says, is exceedingly glad about the plant. He loves this plant. Now, now remember, just a few verses ago, he was exceedingly angry when human beings weren't destroyed. But a plant growing for shade, this is a cause for a party. He loves this plant. But then God appoints a worm to attack the plant. And so the plant withers and dies. Now, there's just a quick aside here. Have you noticed something in this story as we've been going along? Everything in this story, every person, everything in the story perfectly obeys God's will. The wind, the sea, the fish, the Ninevites, the sailors, the plant, even the worm. I mean, even the worm instantly obeys God's will. Everyone and everything in the story obeys God perfectly and instantly except for his prophet. who is now exposed to the elements because his beloved plant has just died. Look at chapter 4, verse 8. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and he said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? To be angry for the plant, Jonah? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came up to being in the night and perished in the night. And Jonah, Jonah, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their left from their right. Jonah, these people are lost. They're made in my image. I love them. You had pity for a plant. Should I not have pity on this great city? 
and also much cattle. I don't know why they threw that in. And also much cattle. God cares about this city. He loves it. And that's where the story ends. It ends with the question to Jonah. And we don't know what happened to Jonah. I mean, this is how the book ends. It's kind of left open for us. Jonah cared more for his own comfort than he cared for human beings made in the image of God. God says to Jonah, you have experienced my grace in massive measure, Jonah, and you can't have it both ways. You can't love grace for yourself and hate it for others at the same time. You can't have it both ways. Jonah is offended by grace, and and grace is offensive because it means that people don't get what they deserve. And Jonah is so offended by grace that he would rather die than live in a world where the wrong people, where those people experience grace. God's grace. And this is why the more I thought about Jonah this week, the more I saw myself, the more I see our church today, there is part of us that hates grace. Grace is offensive. Jonah was offended. He knew God better than most, and he can't stand what God is like. And so as we try to wrap our minds around this story this morning, I want to ask us three questions. First, why do we hate grace? Second, what are the symptoms of grace hating? And then how do we begin to change? First, why do we hate grace? Um, Why does it offend us? I think there are at least two reasons. First, I think we hate grace because, like we said at the beginning, I think grace means that we lack something, that we're not good enough on our, on our own. If, if I show up to lunch on time, I don't have any need of grace, but if I am supposed to meet you for lunch and I show up for 30 minutes late, that's when I need grace from you. Receiving grace means there's something lacking, something broken in me. Grace constantly reminds us that we are not good enough on our own. But second, I think we find grace offensive because grace means that other people don't get what they deserve. Grace means that that God can forgive people who have done terrible things. Grace is often defined as unmerited favor. Grace means that God can show favor to people who have done nothing at all to earn it. You see, only Christianity is ultimately a religion of grace. Every other religion in the world says this is what you need to do, this is what you need to, um, to accomplish in order to get to know God or to find God or to live a good life. Only Christianity says you can't find God on your own. You can't live a good life. You can't do it. You need grace. We hate grace, but it's the only thing that will save us. Every other religion in the world essentially offers good advice about what you can do to find God. Christianity is the only religion in the world that offers good news. Good news that what is accomplished for you is all that needs to be done to get to God. That the life and death and resurrection of Jesus has made it possible for what you lack to be filled for your rebellion to be forgiven, for your brokenness to be healed. But you may be thinking, Bill, maybe I hate grace, but I I don't know. I I feel like I kind of like grace. How can I tell if I hate grace? What are the symptoms of grace hating? Well, ask yourself a few diagnostic questions. Do I take credit for the good things in my life? 
Do I resent God when bad things happen to me? Do I resent when good things happen to others, especially people I don't like? Do I believe that somehow I've earned God's favor? I mean, if so, there's part of you that hates grace. But the thing is that none of us can really answer those questions honestly. I mean, they're too, they're too direct. So here are the really hard diagnostic questions. Would I rather serve or be served? Am I unkind and impatient, especially with those who are closest to me? Am I quick to think the best of people or the worst? Who do I believe is beyond God's reach? Who do I secretly wish bad things would happen to? Who do I compare myself to in order to say my sins aren't as bad? I'm not that sinful. Who do you look at to feel better about yourself? Is it the people of Walmart website? Is it small town people? Is it rich people? Is it poorly dressed people? Is it obese people? Who am I impatient towards? Who do I struggle to forgive? Where am I angry or proud or bitter or self-righteousness? All of those things exist in our lives because we hate grace. And if you hate it for others, then you hate it for yourself. If you refuse to forgive, if you're just waiting for the hammer to drop, if you feel superior because, man, she looks like she dressed in the dark, or, or if he would just have more discipline, he could lose that weight, then you are, then we are on our high horses just like Jonah. So how then do we change? How do we escape this? There's only one way, and it's by embracing the anti-Jonah Jesus, who is full of grace and truth. When you come to Jesus, when you realize that he has completely forgiven you, when you realize that he loves you, not because of anything you have or haven't done, or anything that you will or won't do, then you will begin to experience a freedom and a joy that probably you can never even imagine. You see, in Jesus There is nothing that you can do to make God love you more or to make him love you less. At at the very worst moments in your life when you are falling apart, when you've blown it again, God in Christ Jesus loves you as much as in the moment when you're faithfully reading your Bible or when you're helping your elderly neighbor with their lawn work. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he loves you in Christ, as much in the moments when you're failing as when you seem to think that you're succeeding? Do you believe that? I mean, no, do you really believe that? Because if you do, your life will begin to change in a thousand small ways. And you'll begin to look a lot more like Jesus than like Jonah pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your amazing grace. And I'm the first to admit that sometimes I don't want it. I don't want it for others, but I need it. 
every one of us is in desperate need of it. So pour out your grace on us. Give us hearts that are soft to receive it and to rejoice in it and to love it and to extend it to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, every week at Christ Community here at Brookside, we celebrate communion as a reminder of the grace that has been poured out to us in Jesus. Um, And as we do that, you don't have to be a member of this church to participate in communion. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have received that grace, if you glory in that alone as your only hope for salvation, then you are welcome at the table. Of course, if you'd rather just use this time for reflection, you're welcome to do that as well. Um, as you come, uh, gather in groups or four or five uh, around uh, the communion station. There's two in the front here and two in the back. And this communion station in the back has gluten-free communion elements available. Works best if you just kind of exit through the side aisles and then return to your seat through the center aisles. And if you're newer with us, you've probably noticed that the pews are fairly narrow. And if you have to kind of climb over someone or um, they have to climb over you uh, to get in and out, we're used to that. It's okay. Um, to do that. So take your time this morning and don't feel rushed. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to all of them, and he said, Drink of it, all of you. For this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Come now to the Lord's table to taste and touch and see the good news of grace in Jesus. Come when you're ready.